Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. This is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here, and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here is some kind of magic. The darkest magic. They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. He made one move. Jack! And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. How are you going to spring us? I have no idea. Many mysteries, many unanswerable questions, even in a life as short as yours. My destiny rests in your capable hands. Hey, I'll do my best. Century Fox presents Kurt Russell in John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. It's on the reflexes. Welcome to another installment of my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of January, we're honoring none other than the legendary rebel of horror himself, John Carpenter. And today, for my final Carpenter-focused discussion, I'm joined by a returning friend of the show, Sean, to chat about John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. Sean, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. I was really excited to uh, chat about Big Trouble in Little China, because from what I understand, you're kind of a fan of this movie, right? I think it's my favorite movie. Um, <laughs> uh, big dork alert. I do. One of the only Funko Pops I own is a Jack Burton, but I've also dressed up as Jack Burton for Halloween a few times. I have the movie, it's probably the movie I've seen the most of any movie ever. You have the board game too, don't you? The board game and the card game. There's two separate games. Oh, there games. you go. <laughs> Nerd alert. I didn't even know there was a card game. So. Yeah. The fi- the fandom of uh, of Jack Burton extends more, uh, more than I realized. But yeah, when I was thinking about people that I know that have kind of a 
diehard love of Carpenter and specifically like one film that is definitely different than what we've what I've already covered with other people. I couldn't think of anybody better to talk to. So in terms of just like starting our conversation, I'm curious, what was kind of your John Carpenter origin story? Do you kind of remember the first movie you saw of his? Yeah. Can you guess what it was? It was probably Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was Big Trouble. I was a little kid, like elementary school. And my friend, Paul, who's still my friend to this day, and we actually work together, um, I went over to his house. Like, we would go over to each other's houses all the time. But he was like, once when we had a sleepover, he's like, you want to watch Big Trouble in Little China? And I was like, what? I don't, what is that? <laughs> that sounds weird. Um, but we would always watch movies like that. We would watch, um, like, Jackie Chan movies or, like, um, other movies like the heroic trio with Michelle Yeoh um, mm -hmm. and things like that, but um, it was a it was recorded off I believe HBO. It was just he had like his dad recorded movies off TV all the time, and that's basically what we watched. Um, so yeah, that was my first experience just just watching that and thinking it was like the weirdest movie I had ever seen. But like I don't know, it was kind of a transcendent experience. And I just liked it more and more um, the more I grew up and the more I watched it. So that that was my origin story with John Carpenter. That's a pretty fitting uh, fitting place. I mean, I came to John Carpenter at the opposite end of the spectrum of the genres that he covers because like The Thing was the first John Carpenter movie I saw, which is very much horror centric. So I came to Big Trouble in Little China much later in exploring his filmography. So I started with The Thing and then I like hit up the greatest hits from early in his career whether it be The Fog, Halloween, Salt on Precinct, um, or Escape from New York. And Big Trouble in Little China is one that took me so long to see just because it was so far removed from my understanding of John Carpenter, like what I came to expect from him. And yet that is why I think the film really stands out to me amongst his entire filmography is one that is so dis uh, distanced from a lot of his early works and kind of what people assume he mostly makes. And yet it really is this kind of labor of love from him and this blending of genre influences and all these things. I mean, right down from the title, I mean, Big Trouble in Little China, that title kind of, it jumps off the box or jumps off the TV at you basically. And I think comparing it to, or rather saying that you and your buddy were big fans of like martial arts movies and Jackie Chan. I mean, this is kind of like a spoof on those movies, but it's not, that's almost doing it a disservice to say that it's just a spoof of that, right? I mean, it is so many of these different genres, whether it be a love letter to martial arts, a love letter to comedy, to supernatural, to fantasy. I mean, it's it's really a remarkable film amongst all of his other ones. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, that um, just combined with my, my upbringing with it and the fact that I saw it first, I think that's just why it's my favorite still. And my favorite, my favorite movie. <laughs> but yeah, for those who haven't seen Big Trouble in Little China, uh, it stars Kurt Russell as the one and only Jack Burton, who is a trucker, and he must help rescue his friend Wang Chi, played by Dennis Dunn, uh, helping rescue the fiance from an ancient sorcerer whose otherworldly lair lays beneath San Francisco's Chinatown. Um, so in terms of like, if you're thinking of Carpenter's filmography as a whole, what about this movie really stands out to you first obviously it's your favorite movie it's your favorite carpenter movie but what is one of the elements of it that really separates it from his other works uh 
the dialogue and just the it's his most it's definitely his funniest movie it's interesting too because i actually had forgotten that he didn't write the movie he directed and he did the score but the way that he captures scenes and dialogue uh scenes that are kind of like heavy comedic dialogue in them the scene themselves almost plays out funny like there's a funny direction to everything i mean whether it's jack burton's numerous one-liners which we'll get into or if it's just kind of like characters that are constantly like saying their own name out loud to people which is basically just like they enter a room and they have to say their own name to everybody yeah. or gracie law I, here yeah exactly i'm gracie law and she gives us a quick like 10 second uh bio about herself and then they just nobody bats an eye and then also just the terms of like characters that only say everybody's full name basically there's a couple instances where they say like hey jack but for 90 percent of the movie it's not jack it's jack burton and yeah. that's something egg, that egg I think, is always egg shin yeah egg shin yeah exactly exactly and i just love the dialogue like you had said i mean it's so playful and it's legitimately funny but then it's also there's just an awkwardness sometimes to the way certain lines are delivered that make them hilarious. Yeah, in a different movie, the lines would be stupid. Yes, absolutely, yeah. I <laughs> but mean, they work I, really well in this movie. Yeah, and I think that part of that really has to do with Carpenter's direction. And I mean, yeah, again, like you had said, some of the lines are, in another movie, they would be pretty dumb. But I mean, Carpenter has crafted this entire film around it being such a smorgasbord of genres that he loves, whether it be like Western, martial arts, fantasy, comedy. And he creates this kind of weird and wacky world where everything works in a way that it basically has like no right to work as well as it does. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. And there's also the issue of a white guy making a, um, a movie that's, you know, um, centered on Chinese culture and this Chinese experience. But, um, I mean, I can't speak for it because I'm also a white guy. Right. But I did go to a panel um, with um, the guys that played the Three Storms plus uh, James Hong. Oh, and James good. Hong strikes me as extremely curmudgeonly, for one. Um, just because, like, okay, somebody in the audience asked if he thinks that um, representation um, with Asian actors has gotten better in Western film, and he point blank said no that um he still thinks asians are considered the um butt of jokes and stuff like that um but he himself i don't know he had nothing but good things to say about how john carpenter handled this movie so i i take that as a as a good thing right no that's a really interesting point that you brought up and yeah i mean as two white guys we have to acknowledge the fact that we love this movie and yet it is very clearly a white guy making a movie that's about the Asian community. It's about Chinese mythology and culture and all these things. And yet the entire movie, the main character who's a white guy is not really the hero of the movie. He's a sidekick in his own movie, right? Yeah. And I mean- He's just kind of a well-meaning buffoon. Right, yeah, exactly. Like you can't not love Jack Burton and he tries his best at all times. And yet we are laughing at him 95% of the movie. So it's interesting to me that like, I could understand if people were upset with the movie because, oh, there's this white guy that comes into a community that's not his own. He comes into a culture that's not his own, and he's the star of the show. He knows better than everybody. He's the only one. He's the white savior character. And yet he's not that at all. Like, yeah. And 
you can't make this movie with a Jack Burton that is not a dunce, essentially. And yeah. I mean, the real hero of the movie is Dennis Dunn's character, who is um, Wang Chi, his friend who he's helping. I mean, mm-hmm. he is the hero of the movie. And he is the one that is always correcting Jack. He's always making sure like Jack knows what's going on because Jack most of the time has to ask people, hey, what's that? What's this? What's happening? And he's basically a uh, Jack Burton is a stranger in a strange land. Like he yeah. needs a hero to help him because he is very much not the hero of this. Well, it's like the final the final battle scenes where he like fires his gun into the air and then it <laughs> rains rocks on his head and he gets knocked out. And then um, he kills that weird guardian statue thing and then just spends the rest of the time trying to get out from under it. Like he can't fight at all. Yeah. He doesn't even mean to kill it. No. Cause he's just, he's a, again, every single opportunity Jack Burton has other than when he kills the bad guy in the very end of the movie. I mean, he fucks up everything. There's not a single scene where he's making somebody else look bad or he is a figure of authority, right? He is very much the sidekick. He's the Robin to uh, Dennis Dunn's Batman. And And I mean, even when he kills Lopan, that's probably lucky. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's why that moment plays so well, right? Is that he fucks up everything he does the whole movie. And then at the last pivotal second, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to catch a knife and then throw it right back and kill this ancient sorcerer. I mean... That's not a scene that's supposed to be taken as he's a badass. We're laughing. We're dying laughing because there's no way that that would happen. Like, we're laughing at the fact that he is playing against his own character in that last final moment of the movie. I mean, Dennis Dunn also had a really interesting quote because I was thinking about uh, this topic that you brought up where it's a white guy making a movie that is steeped in another uh, culture. And even Dennis Dunn had said, like, I'm seeing Chinese actors getting to do stuff that American movies usually don't let them do. He said he's never seen this type of role for an Asian in an Asian-American movie. And not to say that he speaks for the entire cast and their experience, but I mean, for the 80s, I mean, this came out in what, 86? I mean, for him to essentially be the star of the movie and not be a Jackie Chan or a big name martial artist himself, Like, he was not even a martial artist. He'd said he had dabbled in martial arts. But for him to be essentially the star of the movie in a a funny way, I mean, that's a pretty big deal, I think. And that's something that a lot of people probably didn't get or just overlooked when it came out originally. Yeah. And the guys that played the Storms, when they were talking, they kind of, you know, wear this movie as a badge of honor. Like, they're like, I was in Big Trouble in Little China, which seems cool to me. And I mean, the the three storms, too, just because you mentioned them. I mean, I think those are the pretty clear influences for uh, for Raiden in uh, in Mortal Kombat. I mean, right down from the look to harnessing electricity, right? Yeah, lightning. Yeah. I think I read that that actually was. I mean, it's obvious, but still, you know. I mean, uh, from the few interviews I've seen of, uh, of Ed Boon, who's the creator of Mortal Kombat, he's a pretty open guy about the influences that uh, Mortal Kombat had. Yeah. My favorite's Thunder, though. Yes, absolutely. He's aw- I mean, they're all awesome. And this is the thing that every time I revisit this movie, I'm so impressed with. Again, it's coming back to this idea that Carpenter largely was pigeonholed as a horror director, right? He had so much success in horror, but he's very upfront in saying in panels and interviews and things that like, I didn't get into horror to make horror movies. I got into movies to make Westerns. He's a Westerns fan, first and foremost. He's a science fiction fan. 
He found great success with horror. He has a penchant for making fantastic, timeless horror movies. But it's very telling, I think, that he has a broad love of film and cinema. And that really comes out in this movie. He doesn't, he doesn't really like focus on one specific genre in this movie, right? I think he said he set out to make a Western. And yet this is like five or six different genres kind of melded into one in a way that, again, it shouldn't work, but I think it works so well. You mean Jack Burton's uh, supposed to be some sort of a Western character? <laughs> I, couldn't pick, I couldn't pick up on his delivery. Right, he just traded, uh, he traded out his horse for, a, uh, for an 18-wheeler, right? For the Pork Chop Express. But I think also just in terms of blending the different types of humor, again, it's very slapsticky a lot of times, some of the humor. It's a very much kind of, again, I keep using parody, but that's probably not a great word, but it's like, it's characters that are treating themselves as these monolithic figures, and yet there's no reason why anybody should know any of these people, right? I mean, that's the recurring gag of the movie is that Jack Burton is this legend. No matter where you go, everybody has seemingly heard of him from all of his greatest exploits, and then you spend 90 seconds with him and you're like, why does anybody remember this guy? He is just a white guy that shows up that has a propensity for drinking and saying goofy things. But other than that, like, what is so remarkable about him? Yeah, he's got a cool truck. This is true. He does have a cool truck. But I mean, I love too just the way that the film opens. Um, I mean, for starters, I love that we get another John Carpenter Kurt Russell movie, right? I think that's probably one of the best duos from not only the 80s, I think just in terms of director lead performances in terms of like friendships, because I think this was the fourth of five movies they did together because they did what? They did Elvis, Escape, The Thing. The thing. And then Big yeah, Trouble. Escape from LA was after this. Yeah, and then that. And so it's really like a fantastic relationship that I think it really shows why they had so much, why the movie is so much fun to watch because it seems like that relationship is such a fun one. Like I was listening to the director's commentary for this movie and it's like them getting drunk and smoking cigarettes and then apologizing to the guy moderating the commentary. Then he's just like, yeah, it's just us kind of like drinking and smoking and having fun. And it's just like, that's the whole vibe of this movie. I mean, in college, whenever I would like have people over for drinks, like we'd throw this on or something because it's just such a fun movie and it it hits so many different notes. You're either really taken by this fight scene that's happening, this like epic gangster fight scene in the middle of an alley or somebody's like dropping these hilarious one-liners. I mean, every single moment of this movie is fun. There was a period a few years ago when I would put Big Trouble in Little China on um, to go to bed to like every single night. I don't know, I don't know why, nerd, nerd alert. <laughs> I mean, I don't fall asleep with the TV on, but when I was a kid and I did, uh, I would definitely put on movies that were like comfort movies, right? Yeah. It's something that you don't That's really have to, is. you don't have to pay attention to it really because it's almost like a, uh, a lullaby of sorts, right? It's something you're yeah. familiar with that is like droning out because I'm familiar with it. And then if something comes up, I'll pay attention to that. But chances are you're going to just fall right asleep. But definitely um, this is a movie that I think I only saw this movie for the first time maybe when I was 18, so like 10 years ago or something, but it's one that I have watched over and over and over like multiple times a year just because of how fun it is. And I mean, I just want to go back to the very beginning of the movie and this idea that Jack Burton is this monolithic figure, right? I mean, the movie opens 
with um, Egg Shen, and he's being interrogated basically because there's some big event that's happened. There's uh, the lawyer says like the city block has exploded. This is a deep throat from the X Files season one, by the way. Oh, nice. Okay, I didn't realize that. There you go. So he's like getting basically cross-examined about this event that's happened. And then he's talking about like, leave Jack Burton alone. Jack Burton is, uh, you probably know the line better than I do, but he's We're basically- in his debt. He showed great courage. Yada, yada. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> See, I knew I could count on you, but it's, it's talking up this guy that's a hero, basically. And you're expecting it to be like, it might as well be like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? When they show you who Jack Burton is, because he's this guy that has saved everybody. He's the- authority on everything and then we meet him and he's like he's having a one-man podcast basically over like a cv radio over his 18 wheeler just like spouting nonsense and apparently i kind of wonder if people used to do that like if they would just oh. talk into their cvs or if they right. still do it i don't know i bet no, i totally like, who bet. listens to that other I mean, truckers yeah, other truckers but i would assume that as the technology is kind of built up and up not that i'm exactly up on uh Maybe it's it's kind of like ham radio where people just dial in the frequencies and see if anybody's saying weird stuff. Right. Yeah, no, I bet. But apparently that opening of uh, Egg Shen in that office was not how the movie opened. Right. Apparently it, it opened. I'm not sure the original opening, but it was supposed to be. I think it was just his monologue at the beginning when he was driving. Yeah. Which I think is kind of even hammers home the point more that he's not supposed to really be the hero because John Carpenter never intended for that section, that opening scene to happen. So he's just kind of this bumbling protagonist that, you know, is along for the ride. I think it's funny too, because I was thinking while I was rewatching it the other night that Jack Burton almost comes off like uh, John Wick in the sense that the name precedes the man, except yeah. like John Wick has earned his reputable he's, status. He's, and he's then, good at stuff. Yeah, <laughs> he's actually like has a talent or a skill. And yet Jack Burton, you meet him and you're like, okay, he can drive and eat and talk on a radio at once. That's his only skill set so far within the opening moments. And I'm 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 100% sure that when he shoots that dude, it is the first time he's ever plugged someone. Yes, exactly. That's a fantastic point because... Again, he comes off as being this very tough exterior, but in reality, he's a, not only doesn't know what he's doing half the time, but he is this like softy. He's like a normal guy, right? He hasn't exactly lived up to the image that people have of him. And that reaction is a perfect example of that, right? He kills that guy. For starters, he doesn't know how to take the safety off of the gun. He, he dry fires basically. And then he finally kills him and he shoots him like, a dozen times and then, and then he's, he's all just like, staring there yeah. yeah yeah and then he stares and the guy even calls him out yeah. the guy's like what you've never plugged somebody before and he's like of course i have it's like <laughs> it was like a schoolyard scene where somebody's like oh dude you've never like kissed somebody before yeah i have i have like 15 totally, girlfriends bro. they just don't go to the school like it's very much a scene like that but in terms of um jack burton's character or kurt russell's character i mean i love kurt russell so much and it's it blows my mind that just in terms, not even just in terms of the Carpenter roles, but his range in terms of characters, right? Some actors, I feel they're not able to really break the mold that they're put in based on the roles that they've had, right? I mean, he did The Thing before this, he did Escape from New York before this, and yet he's able to go from these super serious 
and like Snake Plissken's probably the most macho character he's ever played and one of the most macho characters ever. He's like what Jack Burton wishes he was. Yes, totally. And yet he's able to play this kind of doofus role and yet it doesn't come off as being forced or anything. It feels like he's playing a spoof of a character he's already played, to your point. It's very much like Jack Burton wants to be Snake Plissken and yet he's just not capable I mean, he of it. Re- he really wants to be John Wayne, but... Well, yeah, that's true. And, I mean, it blows my mind that they thought anybody else could have played this role. Because who are some of the other people that they really wanted to play this? I think yeah, they looked at, like... I don't remember. But it was it, Kurt... It was Kurt... Uh, not Kurt. It was Kurt Russell who played him. It was uh, Jack Nicholson, Jeff oh Bridges. But Jeff Bridges only because he did Starman with yeah. uh, Carpenter. Um, Which is... And then, like, think the only John Carpenter movie I haven't seen. Starman? Yeah. I saw that re- uh, two or three years ago for the first time and I enjoyed it. I mean, it's I, I love Carpenter's all and I love Jeff Bridges, so I'll, I probably was a little biased, but uh, it's a I think it's an underrated sci-fi movie for sure. Jeff Bridges would have been better than Jack Nicholson, but still not as good as Kurt Russell. Jack Nicholson would have been a horrible choice. Y- yeah, I... He would have just been Jack Nicholson. Right. He would have screamed half of his lines when he needed to. Um, I mean, Clint Eastwood, too, they wanted, which I don't understand. Yeah, I'm going to just hard pass on that and I'll leave it at that. But um, it really is a character. I mean, it's a character that I feel like if you get somebody, it's not even a matter of fame. I was going to say fame. It's just you have to have somebody that literally does not take themselves too seriously as an actor. And I feel that at least for Clint Eastwood, like, He's somebody that I feel takes himself so seriously that he would deliver every line like it was the last line of like a Dirty Harry movie or something. I'm I'm grimacing and rolling my eyes talking about Clint Eastwood for the listeners. Yeah. Since they can't see me. <laughs> this is true. Me as well. But so, yeah, I mean, thankfully, Kurt Russell uh, was the one to do it. And I mean, this is definitely one of my not only my favorite, one of my favorite Kurt Russell Carpenter uh, joint performances, but like Russell performances in general. I yeah. mean, how does this one rank? I mean, I assume this is probably either your favorite or close yeah. to it. It's this and like Overboard, uh, but this is definitely number one. Overboard's another one of those special movies that's kind of just comforting. I think it's it's a little problematic in this day and age, but still. That's one of those movies I see people reference all the time and I have never seen it. It's worth a watch. Yeah, it's a. I assume it's a, uh, a comedy. Yes. All right, cool. So I will definitely... Did they come out before uh, before or after this? That's a good question. Um, Just because I... The year would, after. Oh, year after? Okay, yeah. so he was still sort of in that comedic mode then, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, let's, uh, let's kind of mention some of our favorite Burton quotes because we talked about how much we love the dialogue in this movie and how back and forth and snappy and sarcastic it is and how it, it oh goes from like biting to you're just like, okay, this person just ran into a room and said their full name out loud and then introdu- and then gave us a 20 minute synopsis of them. So what is some of your favorite just Burton quotes? Okay, uh, most of them are the ones where he, um, it's clear he doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> um, so let's see. Um, there's a part with that, that um, beholder thing, the big... Mm-hmm creature with the eyes i think it's called a guardian technically but it's a beholder from dungeons and dragons um and he just goes oh god no what is that don't tell me (laughs) or um wang's uncle is talking about how 
uh, Lopan can change forms. And he says he becomes a dream. And Jack just says, what? <laughs> or like, um, there's a moment when they're in the truck together on their way to the airport where um, Wang's like, oh, that's why the bottle didn't break. My mind and my body are going north and south. And he just looks at him. He goes, <laughs> well, that, that's such a great moment, too, because that really captures not only is Burton a skeptic and he's going into this fantasy world for the next hour and 30 minutes of the movie. I mean, it makes him look like a fool for being a skeptic. But also, I mean, these two, I love their, I love Wang and Jack's friendship because it's one of, they're not just casual acquaintances. It's like they have this history. And yet Jack, when Wang is describing his love for this woman, Jack is like sitting there rolling his eyes and he's like, I'm so fucking bored listening to you talk about this woman. I don't care at all. And it's just hilarious that their friendship is portrayed as being like, they have this crazy history where Wang is mentioning Jack to everybody he meets and yet Jack is such a dickhead, he won't even listen to this guy like profess his love for this woman that they're going to meet. Yeah. Oh, another one, one more. Um, the exact same, the exact same um, kind of uh, um, situation where he doesn't know what's going on. The um, the big giant um, fish worm monster that comes out of the, the wall in the cave. When he says, what? What'll come out no more? <laughs> I love half of his lines too. It's, it's, he's such a reactionary character, which does not make him come out to be a hero at all, right? I mean, half of the lines that make us crack up when we watch this are him going, what is that? Or what does that mean? I mean, that's such a majority of his dialogue. He's just like, how is this guy the hero when he doesn't know anything about anything in this world? Again, he's a stranger in a strange land, essentially. One of my lines that I love that cracks me up every single time is um, when Wang's girl, uh, Wang's fiance, excuse me, gets kidnapped and then they're in the parking garage and the gangsters almost run them down and Jack just jumps up and he stare. He has this like hundred yard stare at the car as it drives away and he just goes, son of a bitch must pay. That's probably <laughs> my favorite line because he says the the way that he says the line, like there's nothing that should be funny about that line at all. No, but he wants so bad to be the tough guy. Exactly, exactly. It's like he something a little kid would say. Yes, totally. And he it's to the point where he's just like, I am the lead in this movie. And yet he has not proven that he is anything other than like a second or third string character for the first 25 minutes of the movie. And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode. Oh, another one. When that Lord of Death guy, um, he 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 pulls out his telescoping bat baton, and he's just like, where'd you get that? <laughs> <laughs> Again, like, he is so... You would think that this guy that is larger than life that has this like tough masculine exterior you would think that he would be like his experience in his ways or whatever would he would be able to expect things that happen and yet everything that happens he's so shocked by it no matter whether it's violence or mysticism or anything like everything catches him off guard whether it's that or even like one of the characters i think it's wang's uncle who owns the restaurant he's like china is here mr burton Goes, I don't even know what, what the hell that means. I don't even know what the hell that means. Like, even just 
simple words of dialogue, he latches onto everything and he's like, this is confusing. What is this? I feel like an idiot for not knowing this. Um, I, I especially love the line where he's like, if we're not back by uh, sun, by sunrise, call the president. Like yeah. he's, again, like this idea that the journey that he's on, like the scale of that, he sees it as being like life or death. When in reality, it's this small event that nobody outside of like this group of people is even aware is happening. Which I think is funny compared to uh, Carpenter's other movies because it is very much the stakes of like the thing, right? I mean, in the thing, if the thing escapes, then it's the end of the world. So many of his movies are just like, well, if whatever happens, whatever we're trying to stop happens, it is the end of the world. Especially highlighted in um, in his Apocalypse trilogy, where it's the thing uh, in the Mouth of Madness and Prince of Darkness. I mean, but in this, I mean, there's no indication that this is the end of the world if something happens here, right? I mean, right. obviously the villain is going to grow into immense power, but there's no indication that his power is going to be leaving Chinatown, right? Yeah. Or maybe I'm mistaken, but... Maybe maybe he'll just be the king of Chinatown. I don't know. Right. No, that's true. Yeah. I mean, that is the extent to which I would assume, or at least it's presented within the confines of the movie, like that is the end goal for him, right? He's going to own Chinatown in San Francisco, but never once does anybody be like, well, this will be the end of the world or the end of the United States or whatever, or anything like that. And yet... Jack treats it like if we don't achieve our goal, like the world is ending as we know it. Because I mean, even if, I mean, there, there's be- there's bigger Chinatowns in America. <laughs> if yeah. you wanted to like grow your power, you could go to L.A. or New York. I mean, yeah, it's a testament to how his characters are written, and also just how Kurt Russell sells it. Because I especially love his reaction to all of the different fight scenes that occur throughout the movie. And I mean, we sort of touched on it a little bit, but there are these fantastic martial arts set pieces that have these surprisingly large scale fight uh, choreography going on for Carpenter. Like a lot of Carpenter stories are very self-contained. And I mean, I can't think of many of his films where there are these massive set pieces where there's dozens of people fighting, whether it be hand to hand or shootouts and things like that. And yet Jack is always an outsider looking in on the action, despite everybody being like, oh, that's Jack Burton. You don't mess with him. He's this crazy, uh, weary traveler guy. Like, it just blows me away the contrast between his character and this, like, fantastical violence that's happening all around him. Yeah. And that, yeah, that that final arena is, like, one of the coolest sets ever, especially with the big doorway with the neon lights on it. I mean, I love that. The set design is fantastic, too. I'm trying to remember... Who did the set design? I think it was the same set designer that did um, The Thing. I might okay. be mistaken on that. But I mean, the set design in this movie, again, it really shows, we talked earlier about how it's we're very cognizant of the fact that it's a white guy making a movie that's steeped in another uh, people's culture. And yet it doesn't, to me at least, again, this is coming from a white guy, but it doesn't feel like it's a cheap imitation of a martial arts movie for the most part, right? I feel yeah. like... This feels like a fan of martial arts movies really had an influence on the set design of this movie. And that's why I always refer to this movie as a labor of love. Not that John Carpenter didn't have that with a majority of his movies that everybody loves for different reasons. But this feels like he finally had enough recognition, the resources, the connections, like he could get a Kurt Russell, he could get Dean Cundey to be the cinematographer. And this is really a film that, hey, 
You have carte blanche to make a big studio movie if you want to. What do you want to make? It's not somebody coming to him with a remake. It's not somebody coming with him in an adaptation of a Stephen King novel. This is like, what are you interested in? And he is able to take all of those influences of cinema that he loves and really make a film that I think, I mean, it's this movie for me and I assume for you is like infinitely rewatchable. <laughs> yeah. And it sucks, you know, how, how he's gotten so jaded because I just want him to keep making whatever movies he wants to make and he's never he's probably never going to make a movie again that that's my uh that's my <laughs> my uh my doomsday scenario we never get one last john carpenter movie but i mean yeah it's again it's rem- it is blows my mind that you can have a movie like this that people that not only bombs uh, yet again another carpenter movie that bombs at the box office and yet it, i don't even call it a cult movie because it is so much fun right i mean Sure, we can look at it and be like, oh, this is, it's dated in a certain regard, but it's kind of like a spectacle in a little, in a way. But I mean, the movie is legitimately funny. It's legitimately a great performance from Kurt Russell. The action is fun. It's, a, it feels like it is a, it is really, I mean, again, I keep coming back to a labor of love, but I mean, there's so many elements of this movie that even if you don't take it seriously, which you really shouldn't because it's basically a comedy, it's still entertaining from start to finish. And the idea that it wasn't connecting at the time, I mean, maybe it has to do with the marketing because that's what they said when this came out. They were like, oh yeah, we'll give you $3 million to market it. But then how do you really market this movie? Which as much as we love the movie, I mean, how do you really market this for that era in a way that translates to what you're actually going to see? And they had to compete with the infinitely inferior golden child. Yeah, I, I had never seen that, but I, I had read that it's similar to this. It's not good, though. That's, no. the, that's, the, that's the main difference. <laughs> that's the main difference. But I think James Hong is in it, too. Oh, really? Yeah, but he's also got like 500 credits, so he's, <laughs> he's in everything. I was going to say, it might be difficult for him to uh, state which he remembers more fondly. But yeah, I mean, in terms of... So what I had read was the studio thought that they were getting Indiana Jones... And this is very clearly not Indiana Jones, which it's better off for it, obviously, because who the hell wants to see John Carpenter do an Indiana Jones movie? Like, again, even though, well, I'll say this, it's difficult for me to even classify the genre that this movie falls in because it has so many genres, right? I mean, it's a fantasy movie. It's an action movie. It's a comedy. uh, It's a martial arts movie. And yet, if you were to describe it as any one of those, it's not really doing it justice what it is, right? I mean, how do you how do you describe this movie to people that find out? Gotta, oh, I want. You just gotta watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite movie. You you have to watch it. And, and I'm taking your phone away. <laughs> that is uh, that's a hard and fast rule. When I have people, when I did have people over before COVID, was uh, if we're if we're gonna watch a movie I describe as my favorite movie, your phone is uh, is staying in your pocket. But <laughs> yeah, so in terms of just like favorite moments or favorite scenes from the movie? What are some of your favorite moments? Because I mean, there's so many that it's even difficult for me to know where to start. Well, one of them is when he's um, infiltrating or trying to infiltrate the brothel and he's Henry Swanson or whatever. I think that's his name. And yeah. I, well, I know that excitement is his game. <laughs> you know more his performance or his uh, 
the identity he adopts is more memorable than the name, right? It, yeah. That that character that he gives, I don't know if this movie came out before or after, yeah, Breakdown, 1997. Oh, so that this was actually before that. But anyways, it's him adopting this very kind of like, I'm a, I'm a white guy that travels all over. I'm completely ignorant of other cultures. I'm going to say a bunch of shit that they would understand kind of thing. And I love how he's able to go from the macho guy to what he assumes is like a dork persona. And yet the dork persona is not that far from his actual persona in the movie because he doesn't know anything. He is ignorant of other cultures. He's ignorant of everything. That's yeah. It's just him. Yeah. (laughs) It's Jack Burton with his, uh, with his hair down for a change, not having to put up that, uh, tough masculine, uh, exterior. But in terms of like fight scenes, what are some of your favorite kind of action martial arts fight scenes? Um, I like the big, um, the ending part with um, Wang and Thunder, where he's just basically chasing him around the yeah. the room uh, until he, you know, does his thing where he explodes. Um. My, my favorite part of that scene, too, before he even explodes is when he's chasing Wang around and he's getting pissed off from having to chase him that he stops at that table and, he and he's like, I've been, it. I haven't broken anything in 30 seconds. I'm just fucking smashes through the table. That's one of my favorite bits of that whole thing. And then the, um, I, I really love the, the uh, whole, that f- the first action scene with the funeral procession yeah, and all that. Um, <laughs> and when he just fucking blasts slow pan right in the fucking dome with his truck. Absolutely, yeah. I love that. Not only that, but like that's Jack's first. I think that scene is not that long. It's less than five minutes long, I think. And yet, Jack and Wang are sitting there, not doing anything. They're just watching this yeah. insane violence explode. And Jack's first reaction is, is like, "Oh, I'm gonna run." So he basically just plows through everybody and doesn't give a fuck if he runs anybody over. I mean, and they're in like the most ostentatious, like, attention-getting vehicle they could yeah. be in. <laughs> but somehow everybody is ignoring them. They look around like they're trying to hide, but it's like, dude, you're in a fucking 18-wheeler. You're not going anywhere. Everybody can <laughs> see you. But I really like that scene too because it is this bit, this massive scale fight scene. At least it's massive scale in terms of like Carpenter's norms for his films, right? Yeah. And I love that it doesn't feel cheap. I mean, granted, again, Carpenter is not extremely well versed at that time in his career at these big set piece actions and yet it feels very it feels like an act i don't know how to put this it feels like his attempt at mimicking martial arts films that he is such a fan of and it doesn't come off as a cheap imitation it doesn't come off as being something that you wouldn't expect to see in a martial arts movie it feels as accurate as it could be or as good of a homage to the films that he loves in a way that's yeah faithful and competent in a way that is surprising to me based on his lack of those types of scenes that he's filmed in his career at that point plus the guy with the butcher knife is like the coolest dude wielding a meat cleaver in in the street is an aggressive move but (laughs) i just love the way that carpenter frames that not only from an action set piece but also from like a comedic set piece i mean you have these guys that are in the funeral proceedings and then the other guys like show up and they have guns and the one guy kind of like squares up like he's a cowboy and then nobody else thinks to take out a gun and then all these guys get gunned down and then they come back 30 seconds later and they have bigger guns they have all these guns and it was like 
there's no other cowboy that he's squaring up with. I was like, I assumed that they would have sent somebody to like duel with him. And yet everybody's kind of just like, there's a guy with a gun over there. We're just going to keep doing our thing. His gold plated revolvers. Yeah. I feel like he had the, uh, the golden gun sheet from like GoldenEye or something. Yeah. I'm also a big fan of that scene because when um, Lopan blinds Jack, he just splashes some water from the puddle <laughs> in the road. Yes. And it's, everything's fine now. That's a fantastic example of the the humor in the movie, right? I mean, it's there's nothing there's no reason why if you read that you would be like that doesn't make any sense. But when the way that it's framed and just like the the pair's relationship, it's so hilarious cuz it's like what do kids do when they get hurt? Like when you were a kid playing, you fell and you fucked up your arm, you had a cut or something, you're like you rub dirt oh, in it. You rub dirt in or you, you splash some water on it. My dad yeah. always told me, just splash some water on it. It'll be fine. Yeah. Like shit like that. And I mean, it's so hilarious that these two grown men, this is their solution to ancient magic is eh, some dirty puddle water. Like yeah. whatever. Not a big deal. It'll It cures all. It's got uh, magic properties like, uh, like Egg Shen's potion. Yeah. It's the exact same stuff, actually. That's where he gets it. Yeah. <laughs> He's Probably just walking is. around uh, collecting puddle water from Chinatown. For me, definitely that first the like funeral fight scene, but also there's so many little moments throughout the entire movie and I think it speaks to the rewatchability of the movie that there's no part of the movie that like drags or is air quotes like boring in the way that people would say. No. I mean, there are there gags. There are no lulls. There are no lulls. There's gags throughout the entire movie as soon as they, even in like dialogue where somebody has to have exposition about informing Jack for the 20th time in the movie about how something works or why something's happening, they're able to incorporate these jokes into it that it just, it, it either makes you laugh out loud because it's obviously a joke or you're laughing at the awkwardness of how somebody delivered it. Like son of a bitch must pay. I mean, that's one of those lines that any other creative team, any other actor, I don't know that, that line hits the way that it does in this movie the way that it's presented. Um, that was that is just a brief anecdote. In college, I showed this to a bunch of my buddies and we would do this thing where we'd go to the dining hall and somebody would stop eating and they'd just stare at somebody and they'd be like, what's up, man? And just look at me and just go, son of a bitch must pay. Just do that all throughout college. And it's like, if anybody else heard that, they would be like, why is that funny? But it's like, you just gotta, then we, we just add another person to our ranks. We're like, you gotta come over and watch Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, you don't know until you know. But I think in terms of also like the cast, I mean, obviously we've talked about Kurt Russell, Dennis Dunn, James Hong. I mean, Victor Wong, I love in everything that I've seen him in. Fantastic. Kim Cattrall, I feel like does not get enough love for how awesome she is in this movie. No, Gracie Law rules. Yeah, Gracie Law is awesome. And she's this character that she's never, like Jack, always misinterprets her as just being there as a love interest for him. It's almost like he's aware he's in a movie and he's like, oh, this is the the attractive blonde. She's my love interest. And yet for three fourths of the movie, she's like so disgusted with him. What does she say when they meet in the airport? She's like, um, it's Miller time. Yeah. She's like, you should stand downwind where I am. Like it's Miller time. It's just like, <laughs> you know what I say when it's Miller time? And then she just leaves like nope. not interested in him at all for a majority of the movie. And she's a character that, again, if this was a traditional action movie or traditional kind of just martial arts movie like she would very much just be the love interest and i never see her as a love interest even though they end up hooking up or whatever at the end of the movie she's never comes off as being single serving in that she is here for jack to hook up with right right no she's mostly 
just kind of pissed off at him most of the time or thinks he's a moron. I mean, we are very much in her shoes because she's the one person that's meeting him for the first time. Everybody else sees him as the legend that is Jack Burton and she's meeting him for the first time. She's like, why are you here again? Like nothing you have said or shown me indicates why you can justify being in here at all. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's one of the best characters for sure. Do you have any favorite, uh, Gracie law moments? Um, I mean, when, (laughs) when she busts in and just says something like, don't worry, it's me, Gracie law. (laughs) Um, that's, that's pretty funny. Um, and the part where they talk about how Meow Yen has green eyes and she said, that's like leather bucket seats or whatever. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, lines like that, again, those lines don't work. And even if that's a ridiculous line, like it doesn't work outside in a different movie because it's outside of this zany world that Carpenter captures for us in such a way where it's like, yeah, everything works in this world, no matter what type of genre influence he's throwing in or the types of dialogue, the way it's being delivered. I mean, it really is a testament to just how the movie is made that you accept every, the parameters of the world are so wacky and wild that you accept everything that happens, right? To yeah. a cer- to more or less, to a certain degree. It's just a culmination of so many things that came together that nothing would have worked if any of those one things had been out of place or not there. <laughs> Well, that's the thing too. Like, I don't know. I buy, I so buy into the world that has been created here and all of the different quirky and weird humor and characters and all these things that there really aren't any jokes in the movie that don't work for me. I mean, I'm sure there might be a few I'm forgetting, but more or less, like I'm laughing throughout the entire movie because it either is something that is said funnily it, or it's, it's a funny line or it's the way it's said that's hilarious or I'm laughing at the fact it doesn't make any fucking sense and nobody says that. Why did you present that line as if it's something everybody says when nobody has ever said that before? I mean, the movie really stands out to me from his other movies because Carpenter's added humor, obviously, in his other movies, but or he has captured humor in his other movies in a unique way. But this is really the movie that I think is the closest to being a comedy that he's worked on, that I've Mm -hmm. seen at least. And... I would never describe this movie as a comedy because that's not doing it really justice at what the movie is. Right. It's it's not any one thing. Yeah. And it is that thing where, for me, if I were to introduce somebody to Carpenter's works, this is always the mo- one of the two movies that I would introduce them to because, Grant, I mean, this is going to be my final question for you in a, in a couple of minutes. If I had to do a double billing of a movie, I would want to capture both ends of the Carpenter spectrum, especially for people that aren't familiar with his work, right? I would do something that is horror focused, which, I mean, I I love The Thing. The Thing is probably my favorite movie. So I would always go with The Thing to be like, here's why this guy is known as like a master of horror. But then to just call, to call him the master of horror and then to do a double feature of horror, it's not really doing his filmography justice because as he is a master of horror, He's not just a horror director. And that's something that we see a lot later in his career. I mean, when he started out, his first two movies were not horror movies. And yet those movies, it took a long time for people to actually recognize them. Well, I haven't seen Dark Star, but in terms of uh, Assault on Precinct 13, like not a hit when it came out. Right. Now it's a cult classic, basically, it's and it's very beloved. But he was really known for Halloween at that time. And yet... I think it's 
depressing when I listen to him talk in interviews and stuff because he does sound, even though he's thankful for his success, he really was pigeonholed. And even though being pigeonholed as a horror director gave me some of my favorite movies, gave us some of our favorite movies, he's it feels like he was never fully satisfied what he was making because yeah. studios had certain expectations. And I mean, after working on this movie, the next two movies he made were independent because he had such a shitty experience working with uh, studios on this. Yeah. Whether it be like creative or marketing. I mean, they said they were going to market this movie and then it turns out they don't know what they bought. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's they didn't like, watch the movie. Right. Exactly. Um, that and also... I mean, I read something where they said, like, we don't want Kim Cattrall. We want like a it was like a rock star or something, which I, I guess they just what they meant was they wanted somebody that was attractive, that was like super famous. But it was like, you, do you, you want the best person for the job or you want the person that is going to put asses in seats? And we know how the film. I mean, that's why this film is such a cool classic, because Carpenter had so much foresight in not only the characters, but knowing the type of person he needed to play those characters yeah 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 kim cattrall you know whatever <laughs> whatever she did after this um wasn't like really uh it didn't doesn't seem like she was much of like a sex symbol as uh at least back then or at the time of this movie um even though she plays like the slut in sex in the city or whatever oh yeah yeah okay yeah <laughs> um but that's it didn't doesn't seem like that was really her in the 80s um but i mean this is what if you if i think of kim cattrall i think of this i don't think of anything else and i mean i guess some of the hesitation that they had was the only movie i know that she was in before this i know she had been in many but it was uh porkies which i haven't seen but i know it's a comedy and so oh and uh police academy she was also in that but I would think that you would want somebody that has comedy experience to be in a movie that is partially a comedy. Yeah. And that, that experience, I think, I, I haven't seen either of those movies, but I would have to imagine that being in those movies fueled the, the comedic aspect of her character. She knew how to sell those wacky lines, even if on paper you're like, I'm saying, what? Why is that funny? She yeah. still knew how to sell it because she has an experience in, in, in comedy, in, in uh, humorous roles. And I mean... That is the thing that stands out to me the most about this movie is that it is, I mean, Kurt Russell is the only like top tier star in the movie. And yet everybody else is a famous character actor. They are a Carpenter character actor to a certain degree, or they just really know how to facilitate those character roles. I feel like if there's anybody else that was a massive name that like like, uh, Kurt Russell, excuse me, like if there was a Clint Eastwood or a Jeff Bridges or something like that, it's too distracting. It's gonna, you're not gonna be able to buy into this world. And I can't speak to how many people that saw this movie were like, oh, uh, Snake Plissken's doing a comedy now, right? I don't know if there was that connection between those movies and those roles. But for me, at least, when I go back and watch this, it's hilarious because I'm appreciative of his range as Snake Plissken, as uh, McCready, as uh, Jack Burton. I mean, it's looking at Kurt Russell as this kind of like monolithic character actor within the world of Carpenter in a way that, I mean, obviously I love that friendship between the two of them, but this performance I think really captivates the kind of different ranges of roles that he's played in one film. 
Kurt Russell is definitely one of my favorites, and nobody could have done nobody could have done this. I literally him. cannot think of a single person that could have done this role other than him. No, not a chance. That really goes for a majority of the characters. Again, like if you were to throw out anybody's name that isn't these people, for the reasons I just got done explaining, um, it just wouldn't work. I wouldn't believe it, right? If it's a bigger name than because. Apparently, Carpenter wanted Jackie Chan for the role of Wang originally. And it's like, I I can't buy that. Again, like, even if you're not that familiar with Jackie Chan, I feel like Jackie, the Wang role is not about him being a top tier martial artist. And if you have Jackie Chan in a movie, that's going to be that role. Yeah, that's a Jackie Chan movie. Yeah, exactly. Well, there is that too. genre. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a, a sixth or a seventh genre for uh, Carpenter to blend. But yeah, I mean, at that point, even though Wang is very much the protagonist of the film, if it's anybody that is like a top tier martial arts talent, then it becomes just a martial arts movie because you have to interweave that talent into every single moment of the film. Um, and it helped that uh, Dennis Dunn obviously had dabbled in, mar- in martial arts, he said, but he's not a master. and. You wouldn't use this movie as an example of top-tier martial arts. It's a fun martial arts movie. It's competent in martial arts, but that's where, I guess, it does get some of the... It doesn't have to be the best at what it's doing because it's doing so many different things well rather than so many different things, like, perfectly, I guess. Yeah, and it's good that Dennis Dunn got this movie because otherwise we might not have had him in um, Prince of Darkness. And he is... As, so I actually, one of these episodes uh, that is releasing prior to this one is uh, is on Prince of Darkness. And I like Prince of Darkness. It's a movie that took me a couple of viewings to really get and to kind of understand the angle he was going with with that movie. And yet a majority of those that movie, I'm not crazy about the characters in that movie, but Dennis Dunn is and Victor Wong are two of the people that stand out the most in that movie to me. They're two of the most forward thinking in terms of like them being a character actor in a role that needs to be played by a character actor. I feel like in that movie, there's not to try to compare them, these two movies, cause that's impossible cause they're two completely different movies. But I feel like these guys are so good at being the role that they need to be for the movie. They don't try to step out of the bounds of the purpose of those characters. I don't know. Well, and I think Prince of Darkness is definitely a John Carpenter horror movie that's made through the lens of the John Carpenter that just made Big Trouble in Little China. Also, it's interesting now that we're like trying to uh, connect the dots between the two of them. It's interesting that Big Trouble in Little China deals with uh, spiritualism and mysticism and all these things. And then Prince of Darkness is the next movie he makes. And that is very much like a, the thematic of that movie is the science versus religion and faith. And not to say like Carpenter necessarily tries to take jabs at one side or the other, but it's very interesting to me that he does a movie that is a comedy to a certain degree that deals with mysticism. And then the next movie he makes, it's almost like he's much more open to the idea of mysticism. Almost. I feel like Prince of Darkness is one and obviously Big Trouble in Little China are the ones that deal with mysticism the most and they deal with faith and they deal with science and religion. Whereas previous to this, he didn't only obviously do monster movies, but he was doing a monster, the shape, uh, he was doing a sci-fi, he was doing a Western that was set in modern day. I mean, it's very interesting that 
Prince of Darkness is the one that precedes this because it's like going in the complete opposite direction in terms of a movie that is him, what to me I interpret as him taking his love of genres and then going, reverting back to something that he's had success in. But again, just like every movie, I mean, every movie I've seen of his, and it's why I love John Carpenter so much, is that it doesn't feel like he's doing an interpretation of one of his older works. It feels like he's exploring horror in a new way, in a new way that is exploratory, maybe to a certain degree for the genre, but exploratory for him. He's moving on from what he's done, but he's taking elements of that. And he's almost like he's redefining himself, sort of. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's probably uh, one thing that put people off about that movie. That's why it took me so long to like Prince of Darkness when I watched it the first, because the first, I was very spoiled coming to Carpenter as late as I did, because when I was a kid, I saw The Thing first, and then I saw Halloween, and then I saw... It's a hell of a movie to see when you're a little kid. Uh, yeah, I, my grandparents liked to scare the shit out of me when I was a kid. It was like The Thing, The Fly, Aliens uh, on repeat for like the first 10 years of my life. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I was spoiled in terms of like what Carpenter, what I expected of Carpenter. And so then when I finally, like over the years, I would want to track down his other movies, become more familiar with his filmography. And so when I saw Prince of Darkness, I was like, where's the monster? Where's the killer? Where's the massive, gory, practical special effects? And obviously, when I revisited it in my 20s, because I think I saw that when I was like 15 or whatever, I was like, I wasn't able to appreciate it, obviously, when I was a kid. You're not able to appreciate the direction he took. And when you appreciate the angle he's taking and being cognizant of the story that he's trying to tell, you have to be cognizant of, or rather, the moments that do have those kind of traditional carpenter moments whether it's like a guy with a suit full of beetles or you've got this green goo in the tank or that woman whose skin is melting you appreciate those moments more because there's so much restraint in the movie itself so it's definitely that's one of those movies that um i don't know i would recommend it right off the bat to people to like give a great representation of carpenter but it's a movie that if you're a fan of carpenter i feel like you have to at least give it a chance at some point yeah yeah, that's but one of my favorites, though. Prince of Darkness. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, I mean, since we're talking about it, and then we can uh, we can wrap. What's what's an element of Prince of Darkness that you think he does? I'll say better, but I don't really mean better. I mean, what's an element of that that he really capitalizes on in a way that is makes it different from everything else he's made? Well, I guess it's kind of similar to Assault on Precinct Thirteen, but um, a little bit slower burn or a little bit gentler. Um, is just that that feeling of um, you know being trapped in one location. It's very much a siege film, right? I mean, yeah. it's not gangsters. You swap out the gangsters for Alice Crow led uh, Legion of Homeless. Yeah. Or Alex Cooper, excuse me, yeah. <laughs> Alice Cooper uh, Legion of uh, the Homeless. Yeah, I think that's very much a siege movie, and also something that I was thinking about just now, actually, about Prince of Darkness is that the stakes are so high. And yet nobody else outside of that church realizes it. That's nobody knows one thing. that the devil is coming. Exactly. And <laughs> that's what I love about that movie is that the end. they're fighting for the end of the world. And then we keep getting these shots of the street and of the street or yeah, of the street. And people are just like walking by the church. They're driving by. There's no chaos erupting. They don't realize that the world 
that the fight for the end of, for the survival of the world is happening like that's something that makes that movie so eerie and to your point it cap it's very similar to assault on precinct 13. nobody realizes that this war is happening at this police station because they're using silencers or whatever yeah. and so cops are driving by repairmen are driving by and nobody knows what's happening and that to me is very terrifying but in uh in wrapping up i guess my final question for you is going to be if you had to bill a john carpenter double feature for somebody that had never seen his work what two movies would you pick and why i'm kind of irritated because it would be <laughs> big trouble in little china and the thing and the main reason is because those are my two favorite ones mm -hmm. but also just because you know um like you said, it shows how fucking scary he can be and also how funny he can be. Absolutely, yeah. I sorry, I kinda stole your thunder on that no, one. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, no, that I think that those are those are my two my two picks and definitely some other people I've spoken to have said similar things just because you want to get the full spectrum of what he's capable of. And I mean, people that are really fans of John Carpenter obviously know he's much more than just a horror director. Not that that is a that is to like take a jab at what he's capable of, but it's this idea that he is a fan of film, and you see that especially later in his career when he leaves, when he gets the rare opportunities to branch out from horror. Um, and I think that it's telling that no matter what he's doing, he's able to apply the same sort of stylistic, whether it be the score, whether it be the way that he's framing things and the way that he's portraying events, he's able to really make a lot out of a little. And since you mentioned the score, the Big Trill and Little China theme song kicks ass. <laughs> but that is, yes, that's all you need to say. I mean, yeah, that is, the, I mean, he, his band did the uh, the end credit song, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was, I forget who it was, but it was uh, John Carpenter and two others did uh, the Coupe de Vils is like the name of their band, I think. Yeah, one of those one of those voices on that song is him, I think. Yeah, is them singing for the final uh, track of the film. And I mean, again, I always look at, because I've been revisiting a lot of his early work, him going from Assault on Precinct 13 and then following it with Halloween just a few years later. I mean, it's really remarkable the similarities that I can see from Assault on Precinct 13 to Halloween, just from a stylistic standpoint and a score standpoint. Obviously, they're two completely different genres, and yet I love the jump from Salt to Halloween, just in terms of seeing him really establish a style that's all his own in Salt, and then growing with that. And you just see him go on that tear through the early 80s of all of those movies. And I mean, it's, yeah, that's the thing. I could talk about Carpenter all day because it's just, I mean, because you mentioned one of yeah. I mean, yeah, he rules. We're dedicating the whole month of January to him. But it really is every single film you mention of his, you're just like, oh, yeah, there's like 10 scenes or 10 different things about that movie that I love and I want to talk about. And that's just a jumping off point. Right. And then you can go off on tangents about his other movies just from talking about those. Yeah. Like we did. Right. Yeah, exactly. See, we just talked for 10 minutes about a different movie that he made. And I mean, I don't re I don't really care because I love Carpenter so much, but it is one of those things where this is one of those movies that I think it should be, if it's not your, your in your top three Carpenter in terms of introducing it to somebody, I would want to hear an argument for it not to be because this movie, again, it shows not only his technical proficiency, but also his ability to 
just make a movie that is entertaining from start to finish. And you're almost like, it's, there's almost one or two moments in the film where you're like, why is this funny or why is this entertaining? And then you just are completely enamored by all of these different elements and genre influences, which I've touched upon at nauseum by now, that it comes together in a way that, I mean, I really don't think, I mean, what was the film that you said this released against that wasn't Golden as good? Child. There you go. This is better than Golden Child. People tried to do something similar to this and it did not happen nearly as well. So, And it's, it's, this movie is very much one of those ones that just gets better the more you watch it. This movie ages insanely well. I saw this movie for the first time maybe 10 years ago, and I love it more than I did the first half dozen times I saw it. I mean, you're, I would totally agree with that. This movie ages like a fine wine, as they say. But uh, hey, man, I really enjoyed having you on to talk about Big Trouble in Little China and John Carpenter. So I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It was awesome. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.